Hi, and welcome back to Activists of Tech, the Responsible Tech Podcast. To understand tech law, you have to understand the history of law, and Dr. Lee takes us on a journey in this episode. Starting with a fascinating overview of the origins of law, our guest talks about data colonialism, the use of data in law enforcement, intrusive technologies, including brainwave monitoring technologies, which truly freaked me out, but also surveillance capitalism and how culture impacts tech policymaking. Dr. Kevin Lee is a professor of law at the North Carolina Central University. He was a founding director of Campbell Law Innovation Institute and the founding chair of the North Carolina Bar Association Future of Law Committee. Prior to his career in academia, Dr. Lee worked as a corporate lawyer in Tokyo, Japan. It was a really, really fun conversation to record and it gets quite philosophical. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Dr. Lee, hi, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me on as a guest. So what's your story? What's my story? Um, you know, where do you begin a story? I guess one place to begin, I have a uh, background in social and political ethics. I went to the uh, Divinity School, the University of Chicago, and I studied ethics there from a religious studies perspective, which is sort of anthropological more than uh, like uh, we would say confessional. And uh, I've been teaching uh, law. Uh, my my uh, legal background uh, was uh, being a commercial lawyer, and I practiced extensively in uh, international trade law with Japan. And I guess that reflects in some ways my bringing my, my father's Korean, and my mother is sort of mixed European-American uh, from Ohio. So uh, I've been interested in how people's, you know, how culture works internationally or transnationally all, all my life and have lived that. Uh, and then I, when I uh, went to the University of Chicago, I was, I guess I became interested in how totalitarian regimes arise. I ended up writing on the um, thought of John Paul II, who, you know, was one of the great um, combatants against the uh, Soviet totalitarianism. And, um, you know, because like my, my father, he lived through both fascist and communist regimes and for my father was uh, the fascism of of, of uh, imperial japan and then um, north korean occupation and so uh, i found a lot of, of similarities between them and then when i started teaching you know you, you get back into the tensions and the the busyness of being a uh, in a commercial more commercial oriented practice and about oh 10 years ago I was um, I had organized a, a conference on empirical legal studies, which was um, just a theme that was for me at the time, just a theme that was sort of in the air. A lot of people were talking about it. And uh, I was fortunate to have at the conference one of the evangelists for Lex Machina and watched him present about uh, in detail about how the capabilities of that system and uh, in the audience were some general counsel from that area here who were so impressed with it. And I talked with them and uh, heard their questions for him. And I realized that the nature of law was changing and very rapidly. And so uh, being a sort of academic minded person, I guess I, I decided that the best approach for me was to go back and read more philosophy. And, and so I read things that uh, I hadn't really focused on earlier in my life. So like philosophy of mathematics and computation, I wanted to know what computation was and what mathematics was. And eventually I was led to the philosophy of information, which uh, was at that point still fairly new. And, um, you know, uh, people may not be familiar with it. It was uh, a field that has been explored most thoroughly, I think, by uh, Luciano Floridi, who at the time was at, at uh, the Oxford Internet Institute, but now is the director of the AI Ethics Center at Yale. And um, I found Floridi's work to be uh, vastly illuminating on many, many fronts and uh, spent a good deal of time reading about it and learning about it. And I'm still reading and learning about it, frankly. But uh, I, from there, uh, I started to rethink the nature of what's going on in law today. And it led me to think about complexity science and learn much more about complexity science. And I was very fortunate to uh, to meet uh, Bill Rand, who's at um, North Carolina uh, State University, 
and have some nice conversations with him. And he gave me some guidance on what to read and complexity science. But that that has led me to uh, then write on uh, and think about how legal technology is developing. And I try to stay up on developments uh, in in the technology, but also to think about some of those issues about how politics works and how society works and how the forces of the new technology are, are shaping the political theory uh, that's emerging or, or challenging more. I can't say there is a political theory that's emerging specifically, but certainly challenging traditional conceptions of liberalism and, and other other you know, aspects of our, of our democracy. That's a, that's a long, long story short, but. No, that's really interesting. And actually, it's funny that you say, you know, reading to understand how society works. I'm still trying to understand how it works. And whenever you get into a field, it's just like all intertwined and it's hard to entangle. Can you tell us how tech and law are related? You know, that's, that's a, you know, a very big question. Uh, I, I would say a couple of things we can learn very quickly by looking at history. The, the first idea is that law and technology, information technology in particular, are, are obviously very, you know, historically intertwined. And we can think back of, uh, you know, Draco, the great uh, tyrant from ancient uh, Greece, you know, who's famous for writing the law or carving the law in stone and putting it into the into the central square in order to establish a rule of law that's literally written in stone, you know, that changed this, the law when it goes from being an oral tradition to a written tradition. So just the introduction of text meant the law was more regular and that it, it could actually also be applied against the sovereign. You know, these ideas came out. If we think about print text coming into uh, existence, that's dramatically changed our understanding of, of law and the relationship. Uh, there's, a, I think, uh, many thinkers would say that democracy could not have existed without some sort of literacy in the population. And even the like, or early democracies like uh, ancient Greece, very small, so you could rely on word of mouth. And even there, there's some print going on, as you see in some of the... Um, even in some of the platonic dialogues. But the idea that text is, uh, is essential then to creating a, a legal system. And then we go through this period of uh, a long period when uh, written law is, is lost. You know, after the fall of Rome, the uh, law becomes an oral tradition, uh, mostly everywhere except within the Catholic Church where there's still canon law. But it, uh, the civil law becomes mostly an oral tradition. Um, when it comes back into being uh, written, though, you know, we're, we're moving into a new age where early on uh, information or textual information is only available to the elite and it becomes more and more available to uh, broader audiences, right? And you have a professional class of scribes who are not um, necessarily, who, who may be more attached to the text than to the power structure, right? There's a great example of this. There was a, um, a scribe named um, Monicus who was asked by the, the papacy to write on whether, this was during the Crusades, whether a person could be tried in abstentia for heresy. And um, he goes back to the tradition of canon law that existed now and looks through it and, and comes back with the, the opinion that, you know, no, indeed, one has a right to confront their accusers, even, even God called Adam and Eve before him, right, to, to confront them. And the interesting thing about that um, little, you know, papal document, right, is that there is an unbroken textual chain between that and the, the idea of a right of confrontation, which is a fundamental right in, in the U.S. criminal law today, right? So, you know, you, you can see that the, the text and the fact that there was the text and then the text can transmit that information um, is really essential in, uh, to the law. Uh, in the in, um, one, in 19th and 20th century, you see this in the U.S. in a very interesting way. If you go back to 19th century legal practice, there wasn't you know, America being uh, the frontier did not have a good deal of legal text, especially out in the Western part of the country, right? Um, there's, I always like this, there's a great old movie 
the man who shot Liberty Valen, John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, one of these old Western movies. And um, Jimmy Stewart plays the lawyer coming to town, right? And John Wayne's the sort of sheriff. And, uh, but he comes to town with like two books and that's the law. And he's literally bringing the law to the town, right? Uh, the books would have probably been commentaries on Blackstone. Um, and uh, Lincoln learned the law by reading commentaries on Blackstone. There were several commentaries in the U.S. Practice in, um, in those days didn't focus so much on case law. Uh, and you can imagine that, you know, a case could be heard in the uh, a federal case in the eastern part of the country. It may take months and months for it to reach out to one of the western states or even, you know, in, within a state, it could take weeks, if not months, to go from the state capital to a, a distant uh, courthouse. And so, uh, practice focused on legal maxims. Talk to Sun Servanda, Your Honor. You know, contracts must be obeyed, right? And they would like talk like this. And it's not until when? It's not until the invention of the automated printing press, right? Which is, is an early 20th century uh, invention that you begin to see uh, by a guy named John West, who is West Publishing, right? It, it developed into, but you begin to see case recorders and the law becoming much more reported and available. And then, of course, that changes practice because precedent then becomes important. So, yeah, legal technology has been deeply intertwined with um, text and information technology. Today, um, I can remember when I was in law school in the 90s, uh, you know, we were, we were still using dot matrix printers to print out the cases, but that was beginning to have some impact and like expert systems were just becoming available. And today things are so rapidly changing. And I, I think uh, the changes go very deep into our understanding of the nature of law and, and how society operates. And um, those very basic premises that have been around uh, as foundations for, you know, for Western political thought are, are being challenged. That's a lot, another long answer. <laughs> no, it's so much fun. Um, so, okay, let me think, because full disclaimer, I do not have a law degree. Mm -hmm. So from what I know, it's difficult to change the law, right? It takes years to change the law. But technology is going so fast these days, especially with AI. And I feel like we should have had regulations way earlier, even in the early 2000s, with the um, hyper growth of the internet. How can we make that happen? Yes, very good question. So uh, you're right. Uh, the law does change very slowly. There's a, uh, I think the law changes uh, the, the traditional methods for generating legal code or legal text can take months, if not years. But that's not really the problem with uh, regulation. The problem mainly, I think, in, in, there's essentially three approaches, right? There's a sort of uh, American approach to, to regulation, which has been to be very, uh, you might say a light touch, right? Because we don't actually even, the, the Obama administration, the Trump administration had taken the, the position that we should let the, we, we don't want to regulate to in a way that would limit um, economic growth and, and innovation. Um, it's been, you know, a change more recently. Um, the European ap uh, approach has been focused on protecting human rights, I think, and I think that's been uh, a very good um, approach in many ways. And then you have the, the, the Chinese approach, which is state you know, heavily state regulated, but the state owns the the system. So very, um, you know, very three different approaches in the U.S. And I think in the U.S. and the, the EU, in order to cope with the fast or rapid change in, um, in the development of the technology, uh, we are turning more and more to administrative rules by agencies that, that are not really, you know, traditionally what we think of as law being, you know, coming from the legislature. We, the legislature and the executive create an agency like the, um, in the U.S., the, you know, the Federal Trade Commission is a good example, right? FTC, they, they do a lot of regulation and they, they have the authority to regulate and sometimes they'll change the rules within days or if not within a day, even in some rules. Um, so they can respond much, much faster. But even then, 
there is some process that needs to be done. The, the problem is um, that the, the speed uh, that we need to address the change also has to meet the demand for democratic process and democratic input, which takes time, right? So you have that tension. Uh, and then, you know, uh, the US system tends to be actually very decentralized. And, uh, and that also, you know, takes time to have different stakeholders involved. What's going on now in, uh, it's been only a, a couple of weeks ago, uh, uh, you may have heard that the Biden administration issued a very sweeping executive uh, order. And so we're beginning, I think that's really the beginning of, you know, a, a more comprehensive approach to regulation. Now, the executive order is not law, though. It is an executive order, which means that it is really an order by this president to do what this president, uh, and it applies to the administrative uh, agencies, uh, a new president can come in and, and change it, uh, as we've seen with you know, environmental regulations and other, other kinds of regulatory schemes. One bill that's been proposed and uh, it, it bipartisan bill that was proposed in the House, uh, and that's not really going anywhere right now. And I, I mean, right now the House can't even um, pass a budget. And then uh, this in the Senate, the Senate Majority Le Leader, um, Senator Schumer, has been having closed door sessions to uh, draft uh, some potential legislation. So that's uh, kind of where we are. Uh, EU, of course, has the uh, AI Act, which is, is working its way through the political process. I don't think we can talk about regulation without, you know, data privacy. There is a... Um... Yeah the data colonialism topic that came up a few years ago. Can you tell us about it, uh, what it is about, and what kind of risk it uh, poses for the users? Yes. So data colonialism is um, building on, I think, the concept that uh, if you look at the history of colonialism, the, there's a way of, of seeing uh, what's happening with uh, the exploitation of data as a continuation of the pattern of colonialism, uh, but in a uh, you know a contemporary context, there's some I think some some real meat to that claim. You know, it's it's not uh, an idle claim at all. Um, why? Well, let's think about data uh, for a moment. Uh, one of the uh, features of American law, and I, I think this helps to make the the point. One of the features of American law is that we tend to think of privacy in terms of metaphors of time and space. So in our Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, for example, we'll talk about you know, uh, the privacy rights that, that may attach from what can be seen from the road or what can be seen from a door or what can be seen in the bedroom, right? Getting more and more personal. Uh, that doesn't really work very well with technology, frankly, because uh, technology tends to make time and space compressed, right? Or irrelevant in the, in the consideration. So we need some new metaphors. One of the more hopeful ones, and I always associate it with uh, Professor Floridi, is the idea of a data exhaust, right? So that the, the data that is close to me personally, I have much more ownership over. And then as it gets farther afield, I have less ownership. Why is that? Well, we are information creatures. I mean, we, we not only do we have this data exhaust from our daily activities today, but we ourselves are our data. I mean, our, our DNA, right, and uh, our biometric data, even our thoughts can be turned into digital data. If you've seen uh, Nita Farahani's book, uh, The Battle for Your Brain, it's an excellent book. But, you know, we are data, We and, and we have a data exhaust so that the the idea of data colonialism is if we then think of how does our personal data get used by this massive data-based economy, right? And uh, in particular, looking, uh, thinking about the commercialization of that data, right? The data is often more valuable to companies than, you know, anything else. If you think about I don't want to mention any particular platforms, but, you know, some of the social media platforms or um, um, search platforms that gather up massive amounts of data about their users 
and uh, and then sell that to marketing, right? So they're actually literally taking my uh, description of me personally and commoditizing it and making a profit off of of my identity and my effort, my work as well. Uh, this is the the metaphor of, for colonialism that's being advanced, right? So data colonialism refers to the commoditization of personal data that's gathered for free and uh, or or for very for very low cost things and and then um, exploit it maybe repeatedly. And the problem is if you begin to look around the world and put this into a global context, it's the old colonialist countries that tend to be the homes of the platforms that are the big players in the field, right? So you see a lot of sort of American and Northern European um, countries that are data mining in um, developing world and Sub-Saharan Africa in particular, uh, and and uh, taking all of this and returning nothing to the to the countries. And um, you know that looks a, a good deal like uh, colonialism. And the rhetoric around it sounds very colonialist, right? You know, uh, it was, I forget who it was, but it was on the front page of the Time magazine a, a few years back uh, that claimed that data is the new oil. And, uh, you know, and how did that work out? <laughs> yeah. uh, how did the oil work out? This is, it looks like colonialism. It sounds like colonialism. And it does have impact on, on people's lives uh, very directly. And so, you know, I, I think these are um, not only that, uh, and as an ethicist, one of the, and, and as somebody who studied religion comparatively, I think one of the uh, other colonialist aspects is that the, the normative guidance on AI ethics tends to come from Northern European and American sources and um, traditional sources of, uh, of value normative systems are not being expressed as we develop a global AI ethics. It, it, it's being developed apart from uh, those kind of traditional uh, understandings. And I think that's probably dangerous as well. So it looks very much like colonialism in that regard too. Yeah. Um, when we say data is a new oil, who benefits from it? And what are the negative effects on, on people, on users? Yeah, I mean, who benefits from it is the the largest uh, AI pla uh, enabled platforms, right? Uh, social media being, you know, a, I think a principal example of that. Uh, not the only example, but certainly a principal example. And um, you know, what does it do to individual? You know, you think about that, right? It's, again, the AI comp based uh, platform, uh, social media platform may take up a vast amount of information about a user and sell it downstream, often losing track of where that data is. You know, it's been sold multiple times to different users. Uh, and how, how is that being used? Sometimes to manipulate. We saw this in 2016 um, with the Cambridge Analytica, for example, where the data was used to uh, manipulate voting and change outcomes in political races all around the world. And we saw, I mean, so there's that sort of thing. There's an, another kind of manipulation uh, where products are built with the intent and um, very effectively sometimes to addict the user to a particular pattern of behavior. Um, and uh, that's been you know, well-documented. And that's another you know, form of, of uh, manipulation uh, the consequences can be very um, severe uh, for the users in terms, particularly, I think, in terms of privacy, because once data privacy, I mean, once the, the individual's data is, is being put into the marketplace and it's, we don't even know who's using it, uh, it's easy to identify the individual again, perhaps. Uh, it's being sold to law enforcement, for example. and. Uh, and it can be used by even foreign governments to manipulate uh, populations within their own, own country. It's one of the reasons why the U.S. Um, banned uh, Huawei from uh, selling its products in, in the U.S. was there were was a fear that the um, the Chinese were 
um, gathering data. And we have the same problem with TikTok and the controversy around that too. And I can, I mean, I could go on there. There are, I, I see data um, being used by law enforcement to be particularly intrusive. You know, it's in the, in traditional colonialism, you know, the, the, the workers being, you know, exploited by the work they do in the field. Today, it's like every aspect of, the, of life has becomes uh, commodified. And uh, I know there was some literature maybe a year or so ago about uh, warning um, women to um, not to wear their um, the biometric watches that can sense uh, body temperature because as states and, uh, became more as um, reproductive rights were being you know, taken away from women, the uh, states became more involved with um, buying that data and then monitoring uh, uh, you know, women's uh, ovulation cycle through the temperature uh, uh, data and with, with law enforcement effect, right? So like every aspect of life becomes a potential for commodification, but also for intrusive government action. And, and, and uh, under US law, I'm not sure that that would be prohibited by the Fourth Amendment. It seems like it would be a business record um, that would be allowed. So yeah. <laughs> Excuse I don't know me, that... this would be allowed? <laughs> yes. This is, this so. is beyond intrusive. No, 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 no. <laughs> in my opinion, in my humble, non-American opinion. You know, I, I will say, in, I, I'm not sure because it's not an, an issue I've been, you know, tracking. It kind of fell away from the news. Uh, at, uh, over There's been so many other superseding and intervening <laughs> news stories, but uh, we, we do track cell phones and uh, movement of people with their cell phones. As long as it's not done, you know, sort of continuously, it's it's not um, it it is considered to be a business record, so um, which is allowed. I, it's it's interesting to think of our our data, and this is the problem I think with the metaphors about privacy, the the U.S. law being about time and space, right? Well, the cell towers just having a business record of where the different people are and that that we can record, but without any realization that that business record is of our of our location, which identifies us particularly in, in a very personal way. There's, I mean, I, I'm being extreme there. There, there certainly in, in the in the um, in the jurisprudence is an awareness of that, but uh, it's the threat is that we just sort of miss it. This actually makes me think about uh, data surveillance. Is it, can it yes. be compared to it? Yeah, I think it's part and parcel. I, I think data data surveillance is is really the um, from the government's standpoint and civil rights standpoint is, is, uh, is really the threat. But what we've done is create um, a, an economy of surveillance where private companies are encouraged or it's very profitable for them to have surveillance data on individuals. And sometimes that private data is sold to law enforcement, which is a nice workaround some of the you know, the, the private company surveilling an individual uh, who perhaps has agreed to it in an end user agreement that they've never read, um, right? Uh, but it's a workaround on some of the constitutional pr protections uh, that the government would not be allowed to have that level of surveillance, but they can buy it from, from a commercial service. So this is the problem with, uh, you know, uh, the, the surveillance economy. About choosers agreements, I've never, I don't think I've ever read one. Like, this is too long. <laughs> Honestly, who does that? It's at least 40 pages of very legalese type of, you know, yeah. English. Don't you think there should be something done about it or be more yes. readable for anyone? This brings up another, I have to say, a hornet's nest of legal issues, right? Oh, no, um, so many issues. Uh, the, I think, well, hopefully my, my, Law students are reading those end user agreements, but uh, and I bet they're not either, honestly. And it's interesting to me because so much of the, the AI ethics and regulation that are developing focus on you know transparency and uh, you know allowing people to realize uh, when they're working with an AI system and being transparent about where their data is going and that sort of thing. All of that assumes consent, right? But then when we come to the end user agreement 
well, consent, you know, you signed it, you clicked through, we're going to assume that you had consent, even though there's no real evidence for it, and then enforce the contract. Um, I think um, in um, the American legal tradition, uh, questions that come up at this point are how much how much right does the state have to intervene in that contract once it's been signed and agreed to, or at least putatively agreed to by the party? And that's called uh, usually liberty of contract. Uh, it's a, a 14th Amendment constitutional issue. And uh, for followers of American law, I mean, that, that very idea of liberty of contract comes up in the uh, due process cases under the 14th Amendment which are related to uh, you know, uh, a whole locus of issues around reproductive rights and, uh, um, and marriage rights. And so it's all kind of very much interrelated. I, you have um, some people arguing for more liberty of contract, which would mean that the state has less authority to review those contracts and alter them. Uh, on the other hand, you have uh, in other issues uh, the uh, willingness, it, it seems, of the court to allow much more state intervention uh, into 14th Amendment liberties, due process liberties. So it's kind of, a, it's an interesting dynamic there. In other words, on one side, you have social conservatives saying, we need to allow more state intervention for the common good, whether that's you know in, uh, in reproductive rights uh, or whether it's in um, rights to marriage will allow more state intervention. On the other side, you have more libertarians saying, oh, but not, not intervening in contracts. My goodness, we wouldn't want the government to intervene in contracts. You know, they can, so it's, a, it's an interesting tension and dynamic that's going on, I think, around um, the government's role and in, uh, with respect to individual liberties. I think that reflects changes that are occurring at a very fundamental level and in, in concepts of like, what is a, a human dignity? What is the common good? Um, those kinds of, in, of things. You know, going back to data and how data is sold at, you know, for capitalism and making money, what communities are the most impacted, would you say, by um, that kind of practices, especially in the case of law enforcement? Yeah, it's it's very expansive. I, I find uh, most problematic, which you might um, group together as biometric data, uh, the data that identifies a, a, an individual, uh, and mainly because, you know, this includes facial recognition, but also say retinal scans and uh, and like I mentioned, even brain waves nowadays. Uh, the ability to gather up data like that is is really quite uh, substantial. And um, often it leads to bias, right? And uh, facial recognition being a great example of that where you know there was there's been a great deal of of concern about, the inaccuracy of, uh, of facial recognition software. Uh, it tends to disfavor uh, people who are dark, more darkly complected, you know, and then create um, more ambiguity and allows, and you sell it to law enforcement that may use it to, in a criminal investigation. Uh, from, from where I, you know, see this happen quite uh, a bit, sometimes even locally we'll have facial recognition software being used in a criminal trial, uh, you can imagine the, the difficulty of, a, say, a, a, a person of little means being arrested by the police and told that there's a video in a, you know, say, a liquor store robbery and the facial recognition software has identified them as the assailant, right? And they weren't there, let's say, right? And they go to, a, to trial being especially being of little means you go to your public defender's office and the public defender doesn't have the resources to really challenge um, or often the knowledge to really challenge the facial recognition software how does it work well that's a that's a trade secret uh, so it's protected right uh, and and then you have you have uh, uh, then people getting convicted uh, based off of misidentification by a technical system, which carries sort of scientific legitimacy with, with it, even though it may be flawed. 
Uh, and, and frankly, I've been in court enough to see often the best that the defense counsel is doing is questioning the, the police officer on whether they followed the manual in using the facial recognition software and not questioning the underlying technology because they don't have the expert witnesses to come in to do that, right? So these are, it creates this huge power disparity that's, that's already there, right? And just makes it more, um, it gives it a harder edge. So, uh, and, you know, we're going to see, I, I imagine the same thing as the technology grows. And I, I do think uh, brainwave monitoring is coming uh, and uh, be extremely intrusive. Um, uh, because then it's your thoughts that are being monitored. You're scaring me. I know it's coming. I've literally bought this book uh, that you referred to earlier. Can yeah. you tell us more about brainwave monitoring? I mean, the, the potential is there to gather up. Nowadays, you know, you would have to probably put a cap on someone to read their brainwaves. But that 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 ability to do that can have what, more distant um, uses, indirect uses, right? So if I can gather up someone's brain waves and know what they're thinking at particular times, and the technology exists for that, then I might be able to correlate thoughts with other more visible, uh, where I don't need to actually be in physical contact, like something I can see visually. Like maybe when you're having a particular thought, you have a particular expression uh, and are doing something else or something, you know, so we can correlate uh, the, the data, but I imagine, imagine having um, all of your email, your, your biometric data from your, your smartwatch and your brain waves all being correlated together so that, you know, you open a particular email and I see how it affects your heart rate, but also how it affects your brain waves, right? And we can begin to put these things together. Uh, where does that end, right? I, I um, Professor Farahani argues um, in her book that we need a special regime for that kind of intrusive, you know, brain monitoring, uh, a special legal regime to, to regulate it. And I, I think that's probably a good idea. It certainly changes you know, it, it changes so much, though, right? Not only our, our ideas about privacy, but also our, our, our understanding of free will gets uh, implicated there. And then, and thereby, ideas about responsibility, human rights, human dignity, all of those are tied together. And so I think this is, this is actually... You know, if you think about what, where the threats are from AI, this is the area that people don't talk about is it's, it's eroding these fundamental ideas about our, our moral identity, or we might say our moral anthropology, you know, humans as moral creatures. The idea about what we are as moral creatures is evolving. And I don't know that there's a lot of thought uh, about it that's happening, like you say, at a speed that's relevant to the timeline of the change, right? The change is occurring at, at a exponentially and we're, you know, the law changes slowly, but philosophy changes even more slowly. <laughs> right? Philosophers, you know, 500 years is not a long time for a philosopher, you know? So, and, and yet, you know, uh, the, the rate of change, 500, 500 years of change can occur in a year or two now in our technology. Yeah. Yeah. Let me just recover from everything that you said. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Going back to social justice, what do you think is the most pressing social justice issue um, when it comes to technology to really that we have to tackle in the next year or two, not 500? Well, in the next year or two, this is driven by where the technology is mainly, right? That... Uh, the, the issues that the technology are presenting that we can address right now. I think bias uh, is, is uh, one that needs to be addressed. Uh, I was very happy to see in the uh, executive order from uh, the Biden administration that uh, there's a good deal of concern about trying to come up with auditing uh, techniques and resources for auditing systems around bias. I think that's a, that's a good approach. Um, I, I envision in the future, there's a, there is a demand actually for uh, AI audits around bias. Uh, you might recall, I think about a year ago, 
the city of New York put out a regulation that required, um, you know, and it's limited to within the geographic, you know, domain of New York City, but that uh, uh, companies that were using resume screening, um, you know, software to be, to be audited against bias in that resume screening. And the problem is there's no infrastructure for audit right now. Right. And so um, we need to, and, and there are, I think there's some indication to me in the, in what the executive order is, is suggesting is that the administrative agencies develop those resources so that, you know, we could, a, a city could say, I want a federal um, AI auditor to come in and look at, at bias and make sure that the system meets, you know, minimum standards. Uh, I think that's, that's a huge issue. And it, because it touches, you know, as AI touches like every aspect of our lives, uh, it, it tends to, um, it doesn't do anything. It, uh, AI, I, I think we often anthropomorphize it. So I like to, to say it doesn't do anything. Uh, the, the system detects human bias and often exemplifies it and, it's, and makes it more obvious and um, maybe extends it. Uh, in some cases. So, uh, and, and it raises new issues um, about bias too. I, I think uh, we're, we're seeing new, new issues coming up in, in uh, healthcare, for example, um, because the data is now available to have a better understanding of how um, lots of different social factors can impact healthcare outcomes. So it's interesting, right? So there's a danger, a very serious danger there, but if we, if we manage it correctly, there's also an opportunity to create a more just society. Uh, but that's probably the next year or two. Beyond that, it'll get more complicated. Okay, it's biases in the US, right? It's emotionally and culturally charged in the history. And you talked yes. about culture earlier. What do you think is the impact of American culture on detecting, acknowledging, and addressing these biases in tech? Yeah, this gets back to that point I was making earlier about sort of three major ways of, of tech. We in, in the American, uh, America, we've uh, taken a, a hands-off approach that allows corporations to develop the technology and the use cases for it. And uh, this is a, a sort of a way of projecting empire, right? Because the values get carried with the technology and then export it around the world. Uh, so I, I do see there's a, I, I even think between the US and the EU, and we're so uh, close on so many issues, but you do see issues around privacy, for example, now becoming, there's some differences there. And the US has so much of the technology that there's some ability to leverage against other other countries and i think then that's against the eu if you're talking about the developing world the, the, you know it's enormous uh, influence right and you know we talk about um, you know the alignment problem for example this is this is a major problem and this is one of the reasons why i think you know allowing the corporations to develop as they as they want we're not getting any uh, of the wisdom of the rest of the world into the ethics. And so we'll make, we'll end up with a system that works quite well for, you know, corporate America. And I'm not sure it'll work as well for, and, and the further we get from corporate America, right? The less well it'll work for us. Um, and, I, and what's the role then? How does that, how do we change that? I think this is one of the places where um, the um, academics need to be uh, aggressive in in trying to uh, critique the the regime that's being made and put forward, and then to to argue, advocate for bringing in the marginalized voices, not only from around the world but even within the in the U.S. Um, one of the one of the areas where this is always interesting to me. One of the areas that the uh, I think the legal community is quite aware of is the, the lack of legal representation, even within the United States. And actually we, we score fairly low on this uh, in a global context, but most people in, in the US can't afford a lawyer. They say that something like over 95% of the need for legal services goes unmet. That's, that's appalling, right? Um, I know, um, I mean, 
I'm a law professor and a, a senior law professor. I could not afford a lawyer if I if I had a, a serious legal issue. Um, so it's it's really it's it and if if uh, for uh, low income uh, families who have probably more legal needs than I than I have, they can't afford um, any any legal services. They're lucky to get one hour with legal aid. Uh, imagine going through something like a family law matter, uh, like a, a divorce, and on one hour's worth of you know legal information. So the um, there's a, a movement uh, in the U.S. to try to use technology to deliver legal services uh, as a means for addressing the uh, what they call the access to justice problem. And that's that's good. I'm, I'm glad that you know, and I'm sure that it will help. But in that debate, you know, in that in the process of developing that, uh, some of the things that don't get considered, I I, I wonder if the professional ethics are capable of dealing with the newness of repre of, of uh, you know pro se litigants having uh, access to online legal services. Uh, this is because it's very complex, and I don't think the voices uh, of those of those people are being heard in the decision-making forum for applying those those services and how they get applied. Um, I also, uh, I mean, I worry about particularly uh, marginalized communities and the uh, mediating institutions that exist within them. I'm talking about, you know, churches and clubs and uh, service organizations that are often supplying legal services to that community. Uh, and legal advice. And a lot of it's just sort of also traditional knowledge that goes around in those things. And um, those are really important uh, institutions for identity formation in those communities. And one of the things that worries me is that we might inadvertently undermine or undercut those mediating institutions, which are always under kind of assault by the larger community. Uh, we should be building them up and we may inadvertently tear them down. That, that's, that's a concern for me. And then a huge concern, honestly, as we, as we all know, for you know, our, our technology has a huge and enormous carbon footprint, right? And so it, wouldn't it be ironic if we expanded our, our use of AI to you know, expand legal services while at the same time, if I, I'm in North Carolina, I think of the coastal communities, which are a lot of, you know, underrepresented communities there along the coast. And if we're causing flooding and taking away their, 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 you know, lives and livelihoods while we're providing legal services because we're using uh, enormous carbon footprints. And so all of this has to be, and I, I'm, I, I, I know people are working on that. And, uh, but I, I don't know that if I'm in the boardroom of a major AI developer if those issues are being expressed and yet we're letting them drive. And also I, I uh, as a lawyer and a member of, uh, I'm a, a member of the bar and uh, I am often concerned uh, legal profession self-regulating and I'm often concerned that um, today we need much more interdisciplinary awareness and I'm not sure that uh, the profession as a self-regulating organization has the intellectual resources and knowledge to actually govern issues as complex as this uh, without ex you know, external oversight. So those are, those are just some other thoughts. <laughs> when you say you know, additional oversight, do you mean more minorities, people who are not necessarily from the legal profession, but who are experiences, experiencing the effects? Yeah, I, I think their voice needs to be heard. And um, how that happens will depend a good deal on uh, how the politics of this goes. I, I do think there's a role for um, more government oversight. And I'm not sure that I think there should be perhaps some federal oversight over AI generally, and over AI in law in particular, you know, because there's so much at stake, you know, when you think, uh, I always ask this question when I talk about this, can you imagine that receiving 
your legal services through a website or a kiosk at, at the library, say, will that enhance or degrade respect for the rule of law generally? And what does it mean when we intentionally create a two-tiered system where the wealthiest people and let's face it, the corporations in, in the country will have you know, bespoke high quality personal legal services and the rest of the country will have off the rack and and you know less more generic legal uh, services. I, I just uh, the the role of of lawyers traditionally in in the democracy as uh, um, you know as as being uh, a moderating force and an informative force in the community uh, that's all at risk. And it, it's again it's it's something that's it's happening it's developing so fast that. I don't think there's been a lot of thought given to, you know, what kind of legal system, what kind of democracy are are we dealing with um, now? So that's that's a yeah, it's a big problem. <laughs> do people even have the time to think about it? Like, do the American people have the time to think about these questions? Well, you know, by and large, no. But uh, this again, where I think university professors have an obligation yeah. to be thinking about these issues. And I think law professors in particular have an obligation. Uh, and yet, you know, um, you find very little of it really going on. Besides, I mean, I'm, I'm, I probably know more of them because I'm involved in the field, but yeah. I think, you know, broadly among the uh, profession of, uh, in the legal academy, it's, it's not, it's, I think partly it's, it's just so new And, uh, you know, for a law professor who was trained 20 or 30 years ago and practice and has their experience from that, they're probably not aware, necessarily aware of the changes that are going on. And uh, it's that, what do they call it? The Dunning-Kruger effect, you know, when you're an expert in something, it's really hard to imagine change. And this becomes part of the, of the calculus. So, um, Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's an interesting time in that sort of Chinese curse way of talking about being interesting. <laughs> I think we're, we're facing many, many challenges. Mustafa Suleiman, who is one of the co-founders of uh, DeepMind, has a new book out called The Coming Wave, uh, which is very interesting and, uh, to me. It, it talks some about the interface between artificial intelligence and biotech, uh, which I think is in the, say, the five-year to 10-year range will present many complicated ethical issues as our ability to control and manipulate DNA at, um, at more what democratic levels uh, will become more available. And I, I did also notice that some of the uh, rules in the executive order seem to address, to be aimed at, at controlling or trying to control that aspect but i mean we're, we're really you know dealing with uh, a time when the ability to manipulate uh, and generate dna code uh, could be done through something like chat gpt i don't even know what to say they cannot wait for the <laughs> next five years thank you so much for this conversation thank you very much thank you for letting me speak to your audience that was so much fun